Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's what happens in our culture today, right? You see somebody who's of a different skin color. And maybe by virtue of just the level of privilege that you've had, which is great, you know, growing up in the circumstances that you've grown up in, you weren't around people of color. And so you see them as different. Maybe the only understanding that you have about that culture of people is unfortunately what the media hates. And so now you're associating what the media is putting forth as to who these people represent to be what this individual represents, which is an unfair characterization of who that individual might be. It doesn't have to be purely black and white. It could be white and Mexican. It could be black and Asian. It doesn't matter. But the fact that we're different shouldn't be a source of division. We've been created as human beings to be infinitely curious. And so those differences should really be a bridge to try to build relationships. It should be a, a law of attraction. It's like, man, I need to find out more about this individual. They are different than I am. Like, why are you different, right? And so if we could go back to those, what I would call natural born instincts as to just feeding into that curiosity, I think we would build bridges that would do incredible work in helping heal our country today. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. This show is all about insights and explores how transformational moments of awakening have helped propel the lives and careers of remarkably successful people. These major breakthroughs teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. On this episode, I interview Ike Ikoku, best-selling author, speaker, and coach. Ike helps his clients become fluent in the emotional language of money. Having made and lost millions in his life, Ike knows what it's like to face adversity. He understands how to overcome the magnetic pull of limiting beliefs from the past. And he's taken action to create a financially empowered life designed around purpose. On the show, he walks us through three major life challenges he's faced and how each one gave birth to a new and improved version of himself. This one is jam-packed full of insights, so I hope you have your pen and paper ready. We learn about a concept called the law of the lid which basically determines our level of effectiveness. Ike shares the difference between human being and human doing. He talks about the importance of knowing our inner game, which is our mindset, versus the outer game, which is what the world sees. He shares how to create an indestructible mindset for what we want in life. We learn what two things most control our mindset, why we should remember the law of failure, and why we absolutely must embrace the differences between us. Ike is constantly consuming personal development resources, and we're so lucky to have him share these life-changing concepts on this episode of Inside Out. Ike Ikoku, welcome to Inside Out. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be on the show with you, Billy. 
I'm thrilled to have you. And ever since we first met a few months back, I've been anxious to bring you on the show and have the opportunity to pick your brain, learn your story, and really have the opportunity to dive in to hear the journey that you've been on. And so to get started, let's go back in our time machine and let's talk about the the child Ike, the Ike that became fascinated with money at an early age. And, and I read your book and it, you talk about how you developed a fascination with money early in life. Your mom was an accountant. You had a makeshift piggy bank that you put your money into. So talk to me about that. How did that all happen? And how did that ultimately transcend into your career, which obviously has a huge emphasis in the financial realm? Sure, sure. So my mom retired from the government as an accountant. I used to go to a, a private school and the driver would come pick me up and take me to her office. And so I'd spend like the last hour or so of her workday just watching my mom do her stuff, like, you know, giving assignments to people, doing her accounting, dealing with finances and money and stuff. So I had those experiences. And then my grandfather, bless his heart, he's just an incredible, incredible human being. I consider him to be the, like, the Warren Buffett of our time. Dude had, like, investments in oil gas stations, real estate, businesses. I mean, the list goes long. And so... One of our family traditions was around the holidays. We would go back to his place at the village. And he had this like 3,500 square foot living room that like the entire extended family would come and kind of hang out on. And one of the things that we always did was all the little kids, the cousins, nephews, et cetera, we would kind of do a show and tell. We'd walk around the room and kind of tell everybody how well we did at school. We'd show our report card. And based on our scholastic aptitude, we'd get rewarded with gifts, usually money. So I'm the youngest of three, and my older siblings would take their quote-unquote winnings from <laughs> school, <laughs> and they go like buy toys or buy clothes. I took my dad's old briefcase, and I created like a makeshift bank right around the age of eight, and I started saving my money. So I figured out how to save at a young age, Billy. What I didn't figure out was how to keep the robbers stealing, <laughs> breaking uh. into my bag, older brother and older sister, right? One of the consequences of being the youngest kid. So those were my humble beginnings, right? I didn't really, wasn't aware of what was going on. But as I look back in time, it's like, even at a little kid, it's like there was this imprinting, this curiosity about money. And that just kind of grew over the course of time. I love the story. And I especially love that you talk about not only how it imprinted this interest in money, but also it showcases that your family was very much into your education and making sure that you took education seriously. And knowing your story and your background, I know you. one of the main motivations for your family moving here was for education. And as you describe some of the other things that I've had an opportunity to learn your story, you were upper middle class in Nigeria you had a driver, you had a chef, you had a lot of things that maybe some people looking outside, looking in would be like, wow, I had it everything. And when you moved here, it was a sort of a rude awakening in some sense. You had a <laughs> one bedroom apartment, 450 square feet. So, and your dad didn't come with you. So, so it was, it was a lot at once. Talk a little bit about maybe some of the insights and learnings that you had about yourself as you went through the journey of moving from Nigeria to the U.S., and how that helped to shape and mold who you are today. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty peculiar because I, I didn't have a traditional coming of age. Like, imagine a teenager at that 
those years were like you're at the most vulnerable state, like you're coming into your own, you're getting past puberty. Maybe you're noticing girls, but you're like very self-conscious of who you are, who you think you are within the reality of what media and the world tries to say you should be. So I had all of that stuff working in the background. But at the same time, there was this unwavering discipline to like fulfill the purpose and the mandate and the reason why we were here. So yeah, things were tough. I mean, you grew up with drivers and chefs and all this kind of what we would consider to be luxuries, but was just kind of commonplace. That's all I knew, right? And then you're all of a sudden, you're in a 450 square foot apartment with three other human beings, grown adult human beings. And it's like this huge, huge shocker. And so, you know, bless my mom, we'd, you know, we'd get up at 3 a.m. in the morning, she and I would go throw a paper out for the Columbus Times, the local you know, newspaper there. And that would take like three hours. I'd get done with that, come back, shower, get ready, go off to school, not let that be an excuse for like why I'm sleeping in class. I mean, I was mm-hmm. attentive, you know, graduated at the top of my class. But after I was done with school, I'd go spend another three or four hours like washing cars at the local Goo Goo car wash, get back home, do my homework. And again, there was just this incredible drive to be successful, to get that education, just kind of recognizing the sacrifices that were being made. And so I didn't get to like do the prom. I didn't get to like really have a girlfriend to speak of that I could remember. So a lot of those coming of age things that I didn't experience, I didn't get to like hang out after school and, and just, you know, have unadulterated, unfiltered access to playing basketball or, you know, doing wrestling, just doing a lot of the normal things that you would do. But yet and still, it, it didn't feel like I was like missing out, even though looking back now, I see that I was really, really missing out on a lot of experiences. And, and probably that triggered a lot of unfortunate behavior later on where you try to compensate for like years lost in your childhood, right? But there was just this wavering, unwavering discipline that really, really served me well. Because when I graduated high school and went off to the University of Georgia, I was there for two semesters. And after two semesters, my father said, hey, listen, we can't afford to do this anymore. I actually had to take the car that they purchased for me and walk it back up to the bank and go, hey, I'm sorry, we can't afford this anymore. And so I went through... Years of being kind of emotionally abandoned by my dad during those really, really formative years. And then coupling that with like financial abandonment, because now it's like you got an 18, 19 year old kid who's basically told, figure it out, dude, (laughs) you're on your own. And really, I could have gone one of a gazillion different directions. I could have ended up a statistic. I could have done drugs. I could have dealt drugs. I could have been in jail. I mean, there's no telling where I could have ended up. But still, there was just that, like, by hook or crook, right? I'm going to get my education. I'm going to figure this stuff out. And I had no idea. I feel like God placed angels in my life. So I leave University of Georgia. I moved back to Columbus. And a girl that was a friend of mine at Pacelli High School, which was a private Catholic high school that I went to, her father was a doctor, very prominent. They lived in, you know, just an exceptional area in Columbus. They allowed me to stay with them for several months to kind of get my, you know, get my feet, uh, get myself back on my feet. And so I started working at a local, local private dining uh, restaurant. And after I'd saved up enough money, Dr. Lopez actually 
went with me to a local bank and co-signed for my own car. I mean, like, how does that happen? Like somebody you're not related to is basically just letting you stay in their household, decides to go co-sign. I mean, putting his credit on the line for somebody he doesn't know from Adam, just because his daughter says, hey, this is a guy I went to school with. Here's the circumstance. Here's the situation. I got a vehicle. I'm working. I'm saving up money. I enroll in Columbus College, now Columbus State University. I'm paying out-of-state tuition. It's bloody expensive. But I'm working at this private dining facility in Columbus, and I'm seeing all the who's-who's, the Aflac, uh, the owner of Aflac, and the owners of Total System and Columbus uh, Bank and Trust, like all the big wigs in Columbus. I'm, I'm just hanging out with them, right? And then I meet Teresa Brown, who's somebody who works with me at that local fine dining restaurant. And we strike up a friendship. Again, I share my story. I'm sharing my why. Like, look, I'm going to get my education. Come hook her quick, right? And long story short, she's like, decides to go talk to her parents, shares my story. And her father and mother, Roy and Maud McKinnon, they decide to adopt me. And when they adopt me, I actually changed my name. I went from Ike Ikoku to Damien McKinnon. And they were in the military. So, you know, in addition to having somewhat of like a family presence, I got to benefit from his role in the military. So I could now pay in-state tuition. I could get access to the PX and buy stuff in there. And so I now could afford in-state tuition. It's like what I was working and saving towards now is sufficient to actually pay for my way through college. And so I got through college in 1996, graduate top of my class. I meet my bride, Emma, April 9, 1996. And uh, we date, we have a whirlwind romance. She and I both have the, at the time, had the idea that, you know, you date somebody for three or four years before you ever consider marriage, right? I kid you not, three or four months into the dating, we're like hanging out at Applebee's at a restaurant. And we both start talking about marriage not in third person, but like actually seeing ourselves in that mix. Lo and behold, a year later, we get married. I go ask her father, scariest thing ever. It's like going to a military father and saying, can I have your daughter who happens to be your baby, like the youngest of eight kids? And I have a hand in marriage. And he says, yes. And so we got married a year from the date that we met, April 9, 1997. And Emma goes, hey, listen, I, I love the story and I love what the McKinnons have done but I want to marry the real you. <laughs> so I changed my name back uh, to my birth name. And uh, so that's a part of my history that most people don't know unless maybe they've read my book and they might see some, some information in there. But yeah, I, I just, I look back and, and other than just the grace, the hand of God, you know, walking with you, literally carrying you in moments where you don't even realize how you're getting through some of the challenges. I have no other explanation for how I was able to make it through those years. And, you know, I was going to talk about two setbacks that you had, but clearly that's a a third and that you, you were left at this point, this juncture in your life where you didn't know what you needed to do to do what you really came here to do, which was to get a world-class education and to set yourself up for success. And, you know, I think you had the resolve to do it and you were bound to do it. And what you had to what you've just illustrated is you've had some angels sitting on your side, either (laughs) side of you to, to kind of walk you through that part of your journey. Before we go on to examining some of the, you've made and lost millions of dollars in your life. You, You have some really 
fascinating stories. And I want to dive into those. Before we do, I don't want to abandon the childhood part. I because you you did miss out on a lot. And you know, you didn't have your prom. You were, as you said, you were doing newspaper routes three in the morning. I mean, all of those things at the time, you may not have realized what you were missing out at, as you said. Now that you look back and you reflect, what insights do you have that you could say, okay, this taught me this, this taught me discipline, this taught me hard work. What what are some of the lessons you learned as a result of being an immigrant coming to this country? You know, I know when you came here, you had you even got teased uh, at, at times. And so maybe talk a little bit about that and also some of the lessons learned. Yeah, I think one, there's an appreciation for culture that that can't be taken for granted. You know, I grew up in an entirely different culture. And so coming into the United States, going to a private Catholic school and being amongst some of the wealthiest kids in Columbus, you know, had its had its advantages, had its disadvantages, right? There are a lot of um, you know, maybe entitled kids, you know, that were at that school. Uh, but just the whole idea of like a, a teenage boy coming into his own and just having to deal with all the pressures of like, do I fit in? Don't I fit in? Right. And and so just not being aware of just how sarcastic and uh, how humor prone teenage boys can be and the desire to just kind of like, you know, be the cool kid on the block, for lack of a better word, by taking advantage of others and, you know, pointing out things that are just different, you know, just the whole idea of being different, right? Um, so it gave, me a, it gave me a fonder appreciation to look past whatever first appearances may give off, because that's what, that's what happens in our culture today, right? You see somebody who's of a different skin color, and maybe by virtue of just the level of privilege that you've had, which is great, you know, growing up in the circumstances that you've grown up in, you weren't around people of color. And so you see them as different. Maybe the only understanding that you have about that culture of people is unfortunately what the media hates. And so now you're associating what the media is putting forth as to who these people represent to be what this individual represents, which is an unfair characterization of who that individual might be. It doesn't have to be purely black and white. It could be white and Mexican. It could be black and Asian. It doesn't matter. But the fact that we're different shouldn't be a source of division. We've been created as human beings to be infinitely curious. And so those differences should really be a bridge to try to build relationships. It should be a a law of attraction. It's like, man, I need to find out more about this individual. They are different than I am. Like, why are you different? Right. And so if we could go back to those, what I would call natural born instincts as to just feeding into that curiosity, I think we would build bridges that would do incredible work in helping heal our country today. Right. So that was one of the things that taught me was to really, really embrace people. I mean, my dad's business partners were Caucasian. I spent summers in England. I've been around people of different culture and countries and whatever. And I honestly, I don't see color, to be honest with you. Uh, Most people, they see me as an African-American and they just automatically assume, oh, your client base must be like this huge contingent of African-Americans. It's actually quite the opposite. Most of the clients that I've served over the span of my life, they look just like you, Billy. (laughs) You know, right, wrong, or indifferent, right? But at the same time, I don't, you know, I don't bemoan my own culture. I don't like go out there and, and, you know, 
I just, I see people for who they are, like just having infinite potential and just like, you know, getting to, getting to know that individual, regardless of how they show up in the exterior, right? It's just been something that's been a part of my heart. And maybe that's why God has had some of those angels in my life who, quite frankly, were not of my race, you know, who were there to help, a, you know, have a, a helping hand uh, to help me get to the next chapter of my life. So the ability to appreciate differences, I think, uh, is certainly one lesson that has been learned. Uh, but also just, you know, never underestimate the power of a strong why. I mean, Simon Sinek is all over the place, right, with just helping us understand the power behind our whys. But I look back to, like, how did I get past, I'm getting up at 3 a.m. in the morning, I'm going three hours to work, I'm going eight hours at school, and then going another three or four hours after, and, and still just, no matter what the challenge was, overcoming those obstacles, I had such a strong why that was, again, passed down from my family, but was just this idea that I'm here to get an education. Like that is my sole mission at this point in my life. And I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that. And so whether it's education, whether it's giving birth to a business, whether it's, you know, helping employees elevate to the next level of productivity and whatever it is, if you've got a strong enough why, the what and the how will always be answered. It'll always come, right? Uh, so I think that's another really major lesson that, um, that I learned over the years. And then just the power of resiliency, which kind of comes with that. It's like never underestimate what the human spirit can overcome because we, are, we have resources that we bring to bear in the face of incredible challenges. And you never know what you're fully, fully capable of until you're put in a circumstance where you realize, oh, wow, I wasn't made for this. It might seem really, really difficult, but I have every resource around within me, around me to help me get past whatever measure of adversity I'm facing right now. Resiliency, having your why, having an insatiable curiosity for other people, not because they're the same, but because they are different, are all incredible insights and takeaways that you've gleaned from your childhood and from being through times where it might not have felt good to not have all these things, even though you may not have consciously realized it, you probably subconsciously realized you were missing out on some things. If you hear people in school talking about these things and your why probably blinded you to how that affected you at the time. Yeah. You talk about your why being something that was passed down. And I know you have three children. And I also know that you're a big believer that school is always in session. So clearly, <laughs> so clearly you, you, you're passing that down to your children. Talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, we never stop learning, right? I mean, the moment you think just because you've gotten a master's degree or a doctorate degree or whatever, it is like school is no longer in session. It's when life really begins because it's like your ability to like take whatever foundational pieces you got from the educational system and not only apply that, but see what all, see everything else that they missed out, the stuff that's not in the textbook, the stuff that you only learn through experiences and dealing with adversity and, and dealing with people. Because there is no specific playbook for humans and the emotions and just their backstory and their lens through which they see life. And so being able to kind of massage through all of that and just realize that those are some of the best learning experiences that you'll have, that may even trump some of the stuff you've learned through the books. Is, uh, is incredible. Uh, but I also believe that whatever we do in our formative years gets us to about 25% of the stuff that we really need. So once we step into adulthood, 
that we learn the remaining 75%. I have an insatiable thirst for knowledge such that I can be of better service to humanity. I mean, one of my affirmations is that I consume and I seek out personal growth and development resources such that I can better serve those that I'm called to serve. And so John Maxwell talks about the law of the lid, where you look at organizations and you look at people who are charged with leading organizations and your leadership capital, the measure of how great a leader you are, is always going to be directly correlated with those that are beneath you. And so if you don't keep up-leveling your leadership level, you can't expect the people that you're leading to really exceed you because you kind of set the benchmark. So it's the same thing as a father. Right? You've got an incredible responsibility, not only to the spouse, but to the kids that you bring into this world, but also to society. Because quite frankly, we've lost the sheer magnitude and significance of what it looks like to have a father who is present in their household in every sense of the world. One who honors their spouse, and I could spend a whole day talking about that, right? <laughs> just, talk of, just look at the way we act in bars and just social settings, right? I mean, there's just, so one who honors their spouse, but one who also recognizes the call to shepherd their kids, to identify the gifts that are in them, and to start cultivating that gift such that all of the brilliance that's in that kid, all the purpose, all the destiny that flows from you, right? But onto them and then out to the world that none of that is wasted, that it's released in its fullest form. So yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's why learning, you know, school's always in session, dude. I mean, you're learning all the time. <laughs> all, all day, every day, man. And speaking of cultivating a gift, you cultivated your own gift, which was your appreciation, fascination, curiosity of money. And you studied it. You loaded up with so many credentials. I, I don't even how, know how many letters you know are behind your name. And so we talked kind of about what, what, I'll, what I'll call setback number one, which was the uncertainty of your education. But I want to talk about setback number two, which happened right after 9-11. I know you know, there's job loss. There was not having a job for a considerable amount of time, real estate. And so tell us that story so that we could glean what you took away from that adversity that you had. Sure. I mean, you already know the fascination with money and the truths there. So, you know, me ended up in the accounting profession it was like, like not a strange thing to happen, right? So I get into the profession and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to eventually work for what used to be the the top big six firms, accounting firms uh, in the world. I worked for KPMG and Ernst & Young. And typical of any new recruit into that profession, they make you do audit work, they make you do tax, you got to decide which of the two you like. For me, it was tax. And as I got into tax, I really, really liked the personal financial planning aspects of that. And so I ended up getting a master's in personal financial planning, got licensed as a certified financial planner, a CPA, et cetera. And was doing some really, really cool work with the high net worth divisions of those firms. I was just fascinated by some of the opportunities to really, really like mitigate your tax liabilities, plan for your financial future, you know, utilize the tax laws as an advantage and not as a disadvantage. And so I remember in my 20s, mimicking a lot of what I saw we were doing for the high net worth individuals. So I'm going to use the right terminology just to make sure that I'm, I'm saying it as accurate as I can. But in my 20s, I mean, I had control of an international business corporation that was based out of Panama. 
I had control of an offshore trust that was based out of Belize, and I had control of offshore banking accounts in Latvia. A 20-some-year-old kid, I'm like, I had no business doing that, right? But I was getting exposed to opportunities that, quite frankly, my peers weren't. And so I reaped the benefits of a lot of that and saved up a few nickels and dimes, as they'd say, the 9-11 hits. And as 9-11 hits, it just, it's lights out, right? I mean, obviously, we know the impact of the country. Uh, that goes without saying, but, you know, the tech bubble will go down in history as one of the most significant ones, right? And so lost a lot of money there, lost a lot of money with the offshore investments. And then, I, like you said, I went through not one or two or three months, but 18 months of unemployment, which was kind of like weird in a way. <laughs> so here I am unemployed for 18 total months. And you look at my resume. You see somebody who's worked for two of the big six accounting firms who has a master's degree, is licensed as a CPA, licensed as a certified financial planner, has excelled throughout his entire career. I mean, if you were to make a bet as to somebody who could, you know, get past a layoff and then find another job, I probably was a pretty good bet. But I went 18 months and couldn't find a job. And so in that same season, so here I am, assets are depleted. My income doesn't exist. I had a portfolio of almost a dozen properties that ends up going south because tenants aren't paying any rent now, and it's kind of like the trifecta. So we filed bankruptcy, and we start all over. And as we start over, all over, God makes a promise to me that he will resurrect my finances. But I realize why I couldn't find a job. My purpose, and you hear me talk a lot on LinkedIn about just working with purpose-driven entrepreneurs, kind of goes back to like having a strong why, right? But my purpose was not tied to corporate America. I was always that kid who like not intentionally broke the rules necessarily with corporate, but certainly like, you know, pushed the rules all the way to the far. And I just, there was always like a different, you know, I always had my hands in things outside of just what I was doing in corporate. And so... God understood that he made me to be an entrepreneur and he wanted me to go down that route. And he knew how stubborn I was, Billy, that in his infinite design, he figured out, I'm going to make it become so evident that even if Ike tries to pay somebody to hire him, they would say no, right? So I could even pay somebody to help get me a job. And so that pushed me out into the entrepreneurial realm. Scared as all get out. Um, I, I launched my business. I'm doing comprehensive tax and financial planning for small business owners and I'm traveling the country and I'm outsourcing my services to some firms that are doing most of the marketing to create the opportunities for me, but I still had to manage the projects, manage the clients and create the results that we did. And so I do that and I start seeing a lot of success with that. And by the year 2008, I look back up and literally we're back up to like a seven figure net worth. I've got six figures of passive income. That was like five years, Billy. That made no sense. But it was during that stretch that I really expanded my awareness about some principles and ideologies that I'd had mentors and coaches seeding into me. So I'd always heard mentors and coaches kind of talk about this idea that you could turn your annual income into a monthly income. And that sounded like really, really good salesmanship to get you plugged into one of their programs. I was like, yeah, whatever, dude. But I kid you not, Billy, it wasn't until I became an entrepreneur that I literally looked back and I could see like at the highest level that I was at as an employee, I had like the monthly equivalent of that in income for my business. So it really broadened my horizons as to what was possible and how important it is to kind of recognize what your purpose is, what you're called to do, where your destiny is at. 
So that was, you know, one of many, many really great lessons coming out of that that we learned. And and knowing your purpose is absolutely fundamental to being able to find the direction and chart the course for what we're meant to do while we're here, right? And I I love that you've incorporated that into your, your coaching practice and your mentorship practice and being focused on being purpose-driven and, and understanding what you're meant to do is just paramount. You managed to come back up the mountain from the valley, <laughs> but like any good mountain, there's another valley in the distance. In 2014, you had a business betrayal that caused a unfolding of events that you're not afraid to share. And I, yeah. I, I know this because you, sh- you share it on your website, you've shared it publicly. And, and to your credit, you don't back away from any of the adversity that you faced in your life because it's given you the armor. Frankly, it's made you who you are today. So let's talk about 2014 and and what happened then. And maybe you could share a little bit about some of the learnings and some of the takeaways you had from that experience. Sure. It was so rich, Billy, I tell you. So a little bit of backstory. So 2008, I become financially independent, 34 years old. And 2012, I write my book, Winning the Money Game. And I kind of detail, like, how does this kid go from broke to being, you know, financially independent in five years? And, and what, did I, what did I have to say about what the financial services industry was saying about this is the path that you need to follow, right? So I detail all of that. So 2012, I'm like at the top of my game, like life couldn't be better. I mean, I released the book. It's an Amazon bestseller. I knock off um, Robert Kiyosaki's book, Cashflow Quadrant, you know, during that time where capture a screenshot it's like we're taking an idol out in the industry right just huge 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 success um i get to i get asked to block the huffington post i'm on fox a bunch of other really cool media channels just promoting the book and everything so that's all good and then 2014 rolls around and talk about pulling the rug from up underneath you in that one year i suffered two very significant business betrayals lost seven figures plus so my income drops about a third of what it used to be. And my head is spinning at this point and just trying to figure out, you know, how to come back from all of that. Well, to make matters worse, one of those two business betrayals was sort of like a classic Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. The difference was in our case, the Bernie who perpetrated the fraud that both me as an investment advisor and almost 20 of my clients ended up becoming victims of, he fled the country. He was nowhere to be found. And so two years after the incident occurred in 2014, I'd find out that the SEC had now decided that, hey, my, uh, my analysis of the situation was, one, we don't have any celebrities involved. <laughs> two, Bernie Madoff was a $50 billion case. This is only $200 million. We're not about to expend any resources to go track this guy down. But Ike is an investment advisor. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to hold him responsible for his loss and his client's losses. So they file complaints against me and my companies. And uh, that sets off a two-year legal battle that was painful, to say the least. Um, so being a man of faith, you know, I've learned over the years to try to bathe and season everything through prayer. And so I'm very, very prayerful at this time in my life, just trying to figure out what's going on. And as I go through my time of prayer, I hear the Lord tell me to go forth that I'm going to experience victory. I'm like, but 
I'm like Moses. I'm like, but this is like, um, I'm a little bitty peon in Atlanta. Nobody knows who I am. This is the SEC that I'm going up against. Everybody knows who's the SEC. They're a freaking behemoth in the industry. He's like, go forth. You're going to have victory. I'm like, okay, this must be the 21st century version of David versus Goliath. And I just got the starry role, right? <laughs> so I go forth with this idea that, okay, I'm going to explore. And this is right around the same time that Donald Trump comes into office. I like him or hate him, it doesn't really matter. But one of the things that was consistent with his presidency was this idea that he wanted to kind of drain the swamp, expose a lot of injustice. I felt that what I was going through was very unjust because you don't lose that much money and then end up being held responsible for your loss as well as those of your clients. And so I'm like, okay, so maybe globally there's this theme going on. So I'm like, okay, you know, we'll go forward with that and see what happens. So I hire what I feel like are the best legal team to help me. And we go through almost two years of, <laughs> as I call it, trying to respectfully get the SEC to reconsider their position. I don't experience any measure of victory until about the end of 2018. So here's what my life looks like. At the end of 2018, at this point, I've spent over six figures in legal fees with my attorney, getting to this point of having decided that we were going to settle the case with the SEC. And so we settled the case with them on a neither admit nor deny basis, which is good. But as part of the settlement, I had to pay out over 320000 just to close the case. So my assets are completely drained. Part of the settlement meant me agreeing to have my certified financial, excuse me, my investment advisory uh, license suspended for five years with the right to reapply in five, 2023. Once that happens, you then have to disclose to any other body where you hold a license, a professional license. So I had to disclose for my CPA, my insurance, and my CFP license. And so I do. My CFP license goes down the same track that my investment advisory license does. I get to keep my CPA and I get to keep my insurance license. But now I find out that the errors and omissions companies that would provide insurance for me, they're like, yeah, I don't think we want to do that anymore. <laughs> so I couldn't get E&O insurance. I used to be one of the top producers for several of the insurance companies that I represented. They're like, yeah, you've been good to us in the past, Ike, but I don't think we want you representing me anymore. So I couldn't get appointed by the insurance carriers, even though I had it. So basically, I had my CPA license, I had my insurance license, but I couldn't do anything with it to provide income. My assets were completely depleted. My income was down to about 10% of what it used to be because my investment advisory business just got buried six feet under. Here I am be below what you'd consider to be like government poverty line. <laughs> And oh, by the way, my reputation, Billy, Google my name and you have nothing but flattering comments that the SEC has to say about me, the case, or even other attorneys that are like ambulance chasers for lack of a better word, right? And I'm like, look at here, look at here. I'm like, God, what is, what is y'all's definition of victory in heaven? Because this doesn't look like anything like what I'd signed up for, right? And I kid you not, Billy, here's what I heard. Papa in heaven said, son, you are experiencing the victory that I promised you. Here's the thing. You chose to define victory on your terms, not my terms. So on my terms, I expected a very, what I'd call external victory. I get to expose some injustice in the SEC. I get to keep my book of business. I get to keep my income, my assets, my reputation, all this stuff. And he goes, as devastating as those losses were, 
they're not as devastating as the loss of your identity. Because that's exactly what had happened to me, Billy. Like the, the whole reason why I felt good about himself was because I could look at how many zeros were in the bank account. I could look at all my professional licenses, my business success, my reputation in the marketplace, all of these external things. And when I looked at the man in the mirror, I was like, I like that guy. And God said, listen, I'm going to strip you of all of those things just to remind you that your value to me is simply the fact that you're my son. Case closed. Not that you're my son who's going to be the star basketball player at UCLA, or who's going to be the star player here, who's going to be doing incredible things in business, but just that you're my son. And so there's this huge separation between my human being, who I am intrinsically at the core of my being, versus my human doing, what I get to do or what I'm called to do. So that was the first area of victory for me. The second area was he said, Emma and I have been married 23 years this past April. He said, for once in your marriage, you're actually loving Emma the way she's been yearning to be loved for the bulk of your marriage. Huge personal victory there. Third area was he said, you're actually present in the lives of your kids. And I love seeing some of your videos with your son. It's just, it warms my heart when I see that. But you can be like present, like in the same room with somebody and not be present. I used to go on vacations. And if I didn't have my laptop, Billy, I felt like a fish out of water. Like I was literally about to die because I had only defined fulfillment coming from the work that I did. I didn't understand how fulfilling it could be to just be present with my family, present with my wife, doing all those other things that, quite frankly, are more important. So he goes on to say, like, hey, the reason I'm putting you through all this pain and adversity is because you're going to go help a bunch of my other kids out there. And that was his work. You're going to help them in their journey of becoming who they were created to be. A lot of them, they feel like they're doing a good job because by most measurements, you could look at all the external things. They got the nice house, the nice car, whatever. It looks like they're being successful, but the price that they're paying for that success is the loss of their identity. And so through all that pain, all that suffering, all that turmoil, <clears throat> he rebirthed my coaching and consulting practice. And while I was on the brink of bankruptcy at the end of 2018, in six months in 2019, I went from being broke, busted, and disgusted to literally resurrecting a six-figure coaching consulting practice that continues to grow till today. And so now I have the distinct pleasure of working with people to really kind of master what I call both the inner game and the outer game of success. The outer game is what everybody's got their focus and attention on. Like, what do I do? Do I go build an online course? Do I build a funnel? Do I do Facebook ads? You know, all these strategies and tactics which prepare or are responsible for some measure of success. But in all my studies of really, really successful people, it's the stuff that's going on between the ears. It's what's responsible for 80% of their success. So the inner game is the stuff we do on mindset. So I've got a three phases of success program that I put clients through where phase one is like the foundation. We call it limitless mindset mastery, which is making sure they create an indestructible mindset around the two things that are going to be responsible for how well they do in life. One is failure because it is the definite signpost that says you're on the right track to get into where you want to be. But the other is success, which is like when you get to where it is that you have been dreaming of, 
Have you added all this additional meaning to what success means such that when you hit that pinnacle and it doesn't fulfill that, you end up feeling like, oh my God, what's going on? And you start self-sabotaging the success that you create. And so we work on both of those extremes in Limitless Mindset Mastery. Then phase two is where I put them through what I call client attraction mastery, teaching them tenants about marketing, creating a market dominating position, literally like creating a category of one with how they brand themselves and giving voice to the unique value proposition and understanding their ideal client avatar beyond it's a 55-year-old who's married and has three kids. Like, no, you really got to know them at an intimate level, almost as good as you know a spouse, maybe even better, in order to communicate, get into the dialogue that's taking place in their mind. And so we do a lot of that in phase two, and then we close out with phase three, which is money mindset mastery, which is, again... As a purpose-driven entrepreneur, you're in business for more than just finances and wealth. Maybe it took you 50 years, 45 years, whatever it is, but you finally come to the place in life where like all of that carnage through your life, all the pain, the suffering, the adversity, like makes sense because you know like this is what Billy was created to do. And when you step into that and you start doing it, Billy, you are releasing so much value into the marketplace that you never have to chase after money. Money is currency and it always flows into the hands of whomever is delivering delivering incredible value. And so as a purpose-driven entrepreneur, it's my belief that you will become very wealthy and it's important. It's like there's no problem with you having a lot of wealth. It's when it has a lot of use. So being in a healthy relationship with money is really, really instrumental to not only protecting what comes through you, but continuing to be a current so you can let it flow out into society. And, and do some of the things that it's really supposed to do that's tied to your purpose and your mission. So mind blowing. And I have to admit, when you talked about being present, doesn't necessarily mean you're being present. And I, I gulped a little bit. I just, I felt a, a gulp when you said, I feel uh, like a fish out of water when I don't take my laptop because I, I recognize that in me. Yeah. And I, I think we all, at least a lot of us who are drivers and work hard and, feel like we kind of always have to be on. We need yeah. to give ourselves more permission to sign out every now and then so that we could sign in with yeah. our family, with our children, be present, actually being there and not just physically, but being there emotionally oh, sure. and, and, and helping, helping create a atmosphere where y- you and your family feel a greater connection than you would if you were tethered to some electronical device. Sure. <laughs> I really love the internal and external piece. And one of the things that you talk about are these three laws that you live out every day. And you, you kind of alluded to this false sense of identity that you had built up over a long time. And I, that ties back to the first law. So I wonder if you could go through the law of awareness, law of pain, law of modeling. What do those laws mean to you? And how can somebody who's listening to this podcast apply those laws in their own life? Yeah, human beings, we are the most complex, complicated, yet powerful beings to ever set foot on the face of this earth, right? And so being aware of who you are, you know, my, my car tag in, in college had know thyself. And so this day, it's like God keeps putting like layers as to what exactly that means for I. And so it's the idea that you have to continually 
update yourself. You gotta be aware of who you are. You gotta be journaling and making notes about how you process information, like new insights and revelation. And if you're getting triggered by something, why are you getting triggered by that? What is that telling you about what's going on underneath the hood? Because it's that level and measure of awareness is what's gonna allow you to fully give expression to everything that you were created to be, do, and have. So the law of awareness is really, really key. The law of failure. John Maxwell taught me that we can actually fail forward. A lot of people hide and run from failure because if you go back to the tenets of what we were taught the first 18 years of our life, it's Billy, you need to be good at school. Billy, you need to excel. Billy, if you're in basketball, you need to be one of the best players. You got to make it to the JV. And throughout the course of all these formative years, we create this adversarial relationship with failure where we try to you know, stay as far away from it when in reality, we want to embrace failure. Because it's through failing is when we experience our first uh, attempt in learning something new. And it's through those learnings, it's why Thomas Edison didn't quit after the 10th, the 100th, the 1,000th time of not figuring out how to create the light bulb. It's why when a reporter could tell him, hey, Edison, you must feel like a really dumb schmuck because it took you 10,000 attempts to create the light bulb. He'd go, hey, dude, what are you talking about? All that taught me was 10,000 ways how not to do it, right? So embracing failures, I mean, you know my story. Like if, if I didn't learn how to embrace failure, I would not be here today. Like I'd be like, you know, you'd be reading my obituary somewhere, right? So law of awareness, law of failure, really, really key. The last one is the law of modeling. What I found is it's really, really difficult to grow when you've got nobody but yourself to turn to to help show you the right path, the right way. And so over the course of my career, I've invested probably over 100,000 of different coaches and mentors and programs, always with this thirst for, hey, school is always in session. If you're not learning something new, like why are you taking up space, right? So I make, uh, I make no bones about just having an unquenchable thirst for growth and for knowledge and to really take advantage of other people's mistakes, right? We know we all learn by mistakes. But Warren Buffett tells us those mistakes don't have to be all the ones you make. When you align yourself with a coach or with a mentor, you get to shorten the gap to success. Like you get to learn from their mistakes and then that creates such acceleration and you're getting from where you are right now versus where you know you're called to be. So those three laws are things that just kind of, they swaddle me, dude. And uh, they help me continue to propel and, and to you know be, do, and have everything that I was created to do on earth. And I know that your pastor taught you that failure doesn't have to be final, right? And that's that's a just a mind blowing concept. We often, as you said, we have this adversarial relationship with failure, but it's the failure that helps us grow and become the human being that we are after that failure. Another another teaching, another thing that I know you've said in the past from learning this from John Maxwell is just keep failing forward. And, and that is just, it's so valuable. Yeah, it, it, it bears being repeated over and over and over again because we often, we have fumbles. We have moments where we find ourselves in precarious situations. But if we don't pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off and keep walking forward. To wrap things up here, I want to talk a little bit about where you know where we can find you. Uh, but before we get into that, finish this motto. You have this great motto. You say, I no longer live my life by default. How do you finish that sentence? I live my life by design. Like, dude, 
Don't tell me about the cards you've been dealt in life. Like step into the place of the card dealer. You can reshuffle. You can redeal those cards, right? And by having a, a zest for life and a curiosity about life and just knowing that school's always in session, it doesn't matter if you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. It doesn't matter what your past says. You hold the key to changing what your future is going to look like. And so redeal those cards and live life by design, not by default. Oh, I love that so much. And so Ike, uh, I know your website's Ike Ikoku, uh, and I'll spell it out. It's I-K-E-I-K-O-K-W-U.com. That's your website. You're very active on LinkedIn. I highly suggest anyone that's on the platform, or even if you're not, go find Ike on the platform, engage with him. He's got amazing content, adding so much value and wisdom to the site. Uh, his Twitter handle is IkeFICoach. Where else can they find you aside from the things I mentioned? And if I said anything wrong, please correct me. No, those were great. I've got a bunch of media properties. So another one that I'll put out there is TheLimitlessLiving.com. And when they get to that website, they will see just some copy there about just part of my story, but more importantly, how to get access to phase one that I talked about earlier on that I put my clients through. Another one, if they would love just some free content, I've got a book out there at More Biz Growth, M-O-R-E-B-I-Z-G-R-O-W-T-H hyphen, nofee.com. And there they can download an ebook. It's called, finally, More Business Growth Without Having to Spend a Penny More on Marketing or Advertising. My gift to your listeners, uh, certainly go there, download that book. It'll show you some of the secret sauce that I bring to the table and I'm working with business owners and trying to show them how they can unleash another 10 to maybe $100,000 and have in revenues and profits that are hitting in their business. So those are a couple of, uh, couple of properties that they can go to to try to stay connected with me. Oh, that's awesome. I, I definitely encourage everyone to go check those out. So Ike, to finish off here, I want to give you the final word. And this is going to the listener out there who's the leader, the entrepreneur, the person that's thinking out of going out on their own. What final bit of wisdom, encouragement, guidance, or insight would you provide to help them on their journey? You know, if you are struggling in creating the kind of life that you see in your dreams and in your visions and that you know you should be living, just change your BS. Like, like, what is your belief system? What is it that's driving the reality that you're creating? And so the three things that I try to empower people with is simply this. If you will choose to believe radically, believe in that vision, believe in that dream, believe in the purpose that you know you are called here on earth to do. And if you will pursue relentlessly that goal, that dream, that purpose, that vision, there is no doubt in my mind that you will achieve remarkable results. So believe radically, pursue relentlessly, and you will achieve remarkably. Beautiful words. And I am so honored to have had you on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. I feel rich with insights, wisdom, and have a, a sense of take this opportunity that we have in our life and really do what we're meant to do and remember the purpose that we have and remember the abilities that we have to really do something meaningful and to do something that we not only would be proud of, but that we are absolutely meant to do. Aiki Koku, thank you for being on Inside Out. Okay, Billy, it's been an honor, dude. Thanks for having me. This has got to be one of the best podcasts I've been on far none. So thanks for having me, dude.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out. Oh, my God.